Lord, I thank you for the commitment of the people that are here tonight, people who lay aside time because they want to know more about you. I pray tonight that we are not disappointed, that your Holy Spirit invade this room and equip us and teach us and prepare us for the coming events in our lives. And Lord, I believe this to be one of them. I believe that you're asking us to set aside time to be prepared to respond to people who are going to have questions about your word, about scripture, about your divinity, about the opportunity to find salvation. And they may miss it entirely, Lord, because they may hear lies from somebody else and we can't correct them. It's a heavy responsibility, Lord. You lay it in our hands to witness to other people. So I pray tonight we take seriously the time we have here. But also, Lord, let's have a good time tonight later in fellowship and spend time together growing as a group. pray these things in your name. Amen. Let me summarize very quickly for you in two minutes or less what the Da Vinci Code is about. The mystery that they're trying to solve in this fictional novel is clues that are allegedly left by a secret society that Leonardo da Vinci was part of that kept a very grave secret. And that secret was the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail turns out in the Da Vinci Code not to be the cup of Jesus. Through a long series of word plays and clues, you finally figure out that the Holy Grail and the secret of the Holy Grail is actually Mary Magdalene. That Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. That she bore his children and continued his bloodline. So when they say that the cup of Christ held the blood of Christ, they really meant the bloodline. And that Jesus actually had children and a whole bloodline that eventually married into the French royalty. And that's the best kept secret in the church. That nobody wants anyone to know that Jesus was actually married. That he had offspring. That he was not divine. And there's all sorts of proof of this if people would just look. And the clues are supposedly everywhere. In the Da Vinci Code, the reason it's called the Da Vinci Code is supposedly Leonardo da Vinci, the genius that he was, had access to all these secrets because he was part of the secret society that kept them ever since basically the beginning of right after Jesus' crucifixion that these secrets were starting to be kept. And as the church arose, they tried to hide the truth. But the secret society kept proof so that someday they could reveal it and show the church to be fraudulent. That's what the whole Da Vinci Code is about. Now, it's a very interesting story. I liked reading it. It was fun. Of course, there are some real inaccuracies about this, but the story itself is very appealing, and there's so many cool little tricks that they show, and most of it is historically accurate about Leonardo da Vinci and some of the crazy things that he did and the hidden signs in his paintings. We saw last week that one of the great secrets that he left behind for us is in the Last Supper window. That in there somehow, it isn't John sitting next to Jesus, he actually painted Mary Magdalene. And we saw last week that if you trace that little symbol around them, it looks like there's an M for either marriage or marry or something. But that aside, our job is to respond to people who are going to say, hey, wasn't Jesus married? Hey, I read there's another gospel that said that she was the chief among the disciples, and that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. I told you last week that you have to look for a very clever logic trick that the Da Vinci Code uses. They spend so much time convincing us that Leonardo da Vinci was a genius and knew certain things that there's a leap of logic there. And I told you last week, it doesn't matter what Leonardo da Vinci thought. Maybe he did paint an M in the picture. Maybe he even actually did replace John with Mary Magdalene in the picture. Maybe he put horns on Jesus. Who cares? He's just a painter. And his opinion doesn't make gospel truth, but most people reading the Da Vinci Code will miss that little logic jump right there. They'll think, well, if Leonardo da Vinci was a genius 
And he was able to figure out all these other things, which the book is so good at showing you all the things that Leonardo da Vinci figured out by himself. Then he must have known something about Jesus. And he was trying to tell us by putting the M in the picture. Hey, look, I mean, Leonardo da Vinci could have published a book saying Jesus was married. It doesn't make it so. So the fact that he's playing around with his pictures doesn't change things. But it also doesn't change the fact that people are going to ask you. So tonight we're covering two discrete things. Who's Mary Magdalene? Who is she biblically? Why is the research, and there's a lot of research put into the Da Vinci Code, show that she was supposedly Jesus' wife? I mean, what's that based on? And then we just ask the question, was Jesus married in general? Next week, we're covering a different part of the Da Vinci Code. Another claim made by the Da Vinci Code is that when the church fathers put together our Bible, they decided to ignore certain gospels and use only ones that were biased in favor of the church's view. We're going to be analyzing next week what happened at the Council of Nicaea, how did the canon get assembled that leads to our 66 books, and what are these other gospels, supposedly? You're going to see me reference a couple of them tonight. Where did they come from, and why did we decide they were not authentic gospels? Why did we throw them out? Okay? I think these are the main topics for us to be asking, because people are going to come up to you and say, hey, I heard there was another gospel, and it's not in the book. I think your book is biased. We need to be able to explain why it is that those gospels are not authentic, instead of what we mostly do, what I call the Christian dial tone. We just kind of stand there and go, ah. And that person has lost another chance to find that Christians are credible and real. Next slide, if you could, Anthony. Let's start right in, jump in. Who's Mary Magdalene? What do we know about her from the Bible, first of all? Okay. There's basically four things we know about her from the Bible. In our Bible, she's only in 11 different accounts. And of course, you've got to remember, there's four Gospels that talk about her. But there's only four things we know about Mary Magdalene from the Bible for sure. Number one, we know that she was somebody who had several demons that Jesus healed. That's how we're introduced to her. We know that she was present at the cross. She was one of the people cited as standing at the foot of the cross while Jesus is being crucified. We know that as Jesus is being pulled down off the cross, she's still one of the people still standing there. And she is a direct witness to Jesus' resurrection. Those are the biblical accounts of Mary Magdalene. We know from historical church records that she was one of a number of women who traveled with Jesus. She appears to be from a good family, probably a wealthy family. Most church scholars agree that she contributed financially to Jesus' ministry. And if you didn't know it, there weren't just the 12 disciples hanging around with Jesus. There were actually a whole group of outer people that hung around with Jesus, including a group of women. And these women, along with the disciples and the outlying disciples, would travel with Jesus everywhere he went. That's what we know about Mary Magdalene. The last one I want to point your attention to, the witness of Jesus' resurrection. This is why there's been so much speculation over who Mary Magdalene is, because she plays such a central role in the resurrection of Jesus. Mary is a direct, she gets to witness Christ in his resurrected form before anybody in one of the accounts. She directly witnesses the Lord he appears to her. I mean, you've got to understand, in his resurrected form, he allows her to understand and see who he is in his resurrected form. That puts her in a very central role. So people have always wondered, like, hmm, why her? But she apparently is somebody who Jesus really cares about. 
We know that there must be some sort of relationship or history there because she's traveling around with them. So it's not like he just healed her once and goes, wait, I remember you. You're that person I healed. She's part of the people that is traveling around during his three-year ministry. And in John, we have this very interesting account. Last week, if you watched all the Dateline special, they were going back and forth. You had that one seminary professor who, who, was, <laughs> who was trying to make a case that when Mary Magdalene saw Jesus, what did she do? Did anybody know? When she saw him in his resurrected form, the Bible says, depending on how you translate it, she either touched him or she leaped and hugged him or she grabbed him. It's kind of difficult to understand the proper translation. Probably the best one is she grabbed onto him. And Jesus replies, don't touch me yet. I have not yet ascended to the Father. You can't touch me yet. I mean, he's just literally come out of the tomb is what he's saying. Last week, if you saw some of the more liberal theologians interpret that, they, one of them went as far as saying, well, of course she touched him. It was a sexual gesture because they were married. But there's nothing in the text that says that. All it says is that she reached out and grabbed him. Now, if you were on your way to the funeral of somebody or you're on your way to embalm somebody's tomb who had died, who you had traveled around with and you cared about very much, and then he was standing right in front of you, and add to that that you might actually believe that this person is special, maybe even the Messiah, maybe even the Son of God, and he's standing in front of you alive, where two days ago you watched him crucified on a cross and killed, that might generate a little bit of excitement. Maybe enough where you'd be like, oh my God, you know? Or maybe you're trying to figure out if the person's real, like a ghost, an angel, a resurrected body. I mean, what is this thing in front of you? I just want to make the case that there's nothing in the text that says they were married or that the touch was anything other than she grabbed onto him. Okay? But that one verse has fueled so much speculation about why that was. All right? From that, the Da Vinci Code builds its first block, its first leg. Aha, you see, she was very central. Jesus allowed her to be one of the first people to see when he gets out of the tomb. And she immediately reaches out and instinctively and grabs him. There must be a relationship, is the insinuation. But let's, let's, let's look outside the Bible for a second, because this is where the Da Vinci Code goes next. Apparently, our church fathers were so good at the conspiracy that they've kept all this other stuff from us. And here's how you build Mary Magdalene as the wife of Christ. First of all, she's referred in one of the ancient writings of the church fathers in two or three hundred as the apostle to the apostles. The Dateline Special and the Da Vinci Code both make this statement. She was clearly the apostle to the apostles because it's the early church fathers even called her that. Okay, historically that's true. There's one reference to her as the apostle to the apostles. But you have to understand that the word apostle literally in this context means someone who has witnessed Christ personally. Not in the sense of the 12 apostles. Okay? An apostle means somebody who had a personal eyewitness account of the risen Lord or of Jesus himself. And of course, she's the first. She runs back to tell the other disciples about Jesus. And at first, they won't believe her. So in that reference, yes, it's true. If someone says, well, I heard once that she was referred to this way. Yes, she was. What it literally means, and the church father writing it was trying to explain that she had a very special role for some reason because God bestowed upon her the privilege of going to tell the others that he had risen. 
The Gospel of Philip, one of the Gnostic Gospels that was rejected that we'll be talking about next week a little bit, has this provision that the Da Vinci Code makes huge use of that Jesus often kissed Mary on the mouth. And that could only mean that they were married. Here is the exact phrase. I've copied it down. And you notice last week in the Dateline special, the guy had to actually admit this too. He was the scholar that had looked at the actual Coptic version that they had discovered. And here's what it says. And the companion of dot, 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 that's where there's a hole in the parchment. (laughs) Mary Magdalene, dot, 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 loved in parentheses, and I'll explain what that in parentheses, why there's a word there. Her more than, and in parentheses the word all, the disciples, and in parentheses, and used to, end of parentheses, kiss her, more parentheses, often, close parentheses, on the more parentheses. Every place where there's a parentheses in that sentence, there is a hole in the actual parchment of the text. So if you're going to read the literal words, it would read this. And the companion of the Mary Magdalene, her more than the disciples, kiss her on the. Now, the reason there are some places where there's words filled in to the parentheses or the brackets is because most scholars agree that the, the hole in the parchment is just large enough to fit certain words. So like if there was a parchment that said, my wife sent me, and there's a little hole, and then it said store, you might think there was just enough room to put in the words to the store. And the sentence still makes sense. It doesn't change the context in any way. Here, most scholars agree that the word loved, all, often, used to, are actually correctly to be inserted in the text so that if you will read it, in this context it says, and the companion of the blank, Mary Magdalene, loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her often on the blank. There's still a question about whether the blank is a mouth, forehead, cheek, hand, I don't know. The reason that so many scholars use the word mouth is, one, it conveniently really cuts down Christianity in a very provocative way. But there's a parallel verse in another portion of the Gospel of Philip where it talks about greeting each other with a kiss on the mouth. Now for us, a kiss on the mouth, if you look at it from a very American point of view, is a fairly sensual way of greeting people. But if you look at the Bible when it talks about greeting each other with a holy kiss, maybe you're only assuming that that's on the cheek. Because our cultural norms would be if I met somebody in church on a Sunday morning and decided to kiss them, it probably wouldn't be on the mouth. Or else they'd probably throw me out. (laughs) But there's a very real possibility in this time that closely associated spiritual companions did kiss each other on the mouth. At least the, the same gospel that's making the case that he kissed Mary Magdalene on the mouth Elsewhere, the Gnostic Gospels refer to people kissing each other in a holy kiss on the mouth. So again, at worst, what we have is somebody saying that he kissed her on the mouth. But that parallels holy kisses elsewhere in the culture on the mouth. And it still doesn't get us to the point where we're saying, aha, he kissed her on the mouth, that must mean they're married. Because we haven't gotten to that point yet. Eric? Um. 
Where does it make mention of this Messiah, Jesus, or the subject? It's a good point. The scholars agree that that the loved her more than all the disciples has to refer to Jesus as opposed to anybody else, but I'll agree that it doesn't specifically say that. Is this directly out of the book? This is directly out of both the, well, actually, the Da Vinci Code doesn't say it this way. The Da Vinci Code just makes the leap and says, he used to, you know, I bet you didn't know that Jesus used to kiss her on the mouth is the way the Da Vinci Code presents it and says, the Gospel of Philip says that he used to kiss her on the mouth, but of course, they never let you see the Gospel of Philip because it didn't fit the church father's view of Christ's divinity. So they just rejected that book and said, that book is bogus, but there's actually books out there they don't want you to see that said that he kissed her on the mouth. You know, and there's proof out there. This is historical. It's been around forever. Okay, well, actually, this is what we have historically. And Dan Brown is writing must know this because he's writing today. And the only texts we have that were discovered in a, you know, about 50, 60 years ago have these holes in the parchment so we really don't know. That's why I'm going to reserve issues like the entire Gospel of Philip, and you're going to see in a moment there's a Gospel of Mary Magdalene herself that we're going to push off to next week to talk about what else is in those Gospels and are they authentic or not. But what I'm trying to do right now is to show that even if you take the worst statement in there, and put that on the screen and take it totally out of context and just say it appears that there's a good case that he might have kissed her somewhere. <laughs> you know, and that at, even there you see that he seems to have loved her more than the other disciples, which is a pretty bold statement by itself. Now, there's another part of this passage that brings people to believe that even if you can't make the leap that he was kissing her on the mouth, there's a curious word in here. Really what people believe this says, if you took the holes away, that dot, 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 most of the liberal scholars and the people who believe that Jesus was married will say, what this really says is the companion of the Savior, comma, Mary Magdalene. Okay, or of the companion of our Lord, comma, Mary Magdalene. Of course, there's no commas in the text, but that's what they believe it says. The word companion can mean wife. And if you guys saw the Dateline special, there was that one theologian that she, the, the asked her directly, can companion imply the word wife? And she said, yes. Okay. Now what happens here is this is written in the Coptic language. These are Coptic scrolls. Okay. But they, they actually use the Greek word when they write the word companion. So this allows us to do something which is kind of unique. We look at the words and companion, the word they use is koinonos, which can mean wife, but can also mean sister, especially a spiritual sister. Most of the scholars that critique the Da Vinci Code point out that if they had wanted to use the word wife in Greek that everybody uses, they would have used the other form that you see on the screen instead of the koinonos. Okay? What does that mean? I don't know. It means that a bunch of scholars who know these languages are arguing back and forth, trying to stretch that the word companion means that they were married. And that the rest of the sentence implies that he kissed her on his mouth if she's his companion, which could mean wife, and he was kissing her on the mouth, it's all over, folks. The guy's married. Okay? That's the strongest evidence that they have. The book is almost based on this, <laughs> this little flimsy piece. But I have to admit, you know, if you're reading this and you're a Christian and somebody asks you this question and says, well, what about this passage? Most of us would just turn on the dial tone. <laughs> and just go, aww, because it's... We're not used to seeing this kind of stuff in the church. We're not 
often thrown when somebody goes, well, what about the Gospel of Philip? The Gospel of who? These were found in a different place in Egypt, I think. That's why they're called the Coptic Scrolls, because the Coptics were from Egypt, and they, they had their own, and they kept a lot of the Gnostic Gospels. Now, next week we're going to talk about what is the Gnostic movement, what are the Gnostic Gospels. You know, not, basically, Gnosticism was a heresy that arose in the early church. So that's one of the reasons a lot of this was rejected, was they were written based on heresies that were going on that the early church fathers were trying to rebut. For a long time, we didn't have the Gnostic Gospels. All we had was the church fathers trying to rebut the Gnostic Gospels, so we were trying to guess what they said, because the church fathers would write things like, being the apostle to the apostles doesn't mean that she was special. They would like argue, but everybody knew we're not authentic or inspired at all. Okay? Here's another thing. There is a Gospel of Mary Magdalene. It was written about 200 or 300 A.D. So you've got to understand that even the Gospel of Philip, by the way, is like about 200. So these Gospels are written way later. And if these are quote-unquote Gospels, we don't, we'll talk about that next week. But even if you're going to pick up the Gospel of Mary Magdalene go, aha, she wrote this. In the, in, the, in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, there's a passage that implies that Mary, again, was loved by the Savior more than the other disciples. If you guys want me to read you this passage, I actually have it, but here's what the passage is basically about. Peter is upset that Jesus revealed certain things to Mary Magdalene that he didn't reveal to Peter and the other disciples. And Matthew basically says to him, Peter, why are you so hot-headed? You're always so hot-headed. Don't you know that the master loved her more than us? We should learn and be more like her. Okay? I got to tell you, when I was reading this verse, I, you know, I don't know if, I'll read it to you guys later because it's, it's kind of long, but... It sounded so biblical, it sounded like the same guys that wrote the Bible. Like when you read these words, you think, wow, man, this is like discovering new books of the Bible you didn't even know existed. Well, they're like new books, but they're not part of the Bible and they shouldn't be. And we'll talk about why again next week. But again, I'm not saying that the Gospel of Mary Magdalene is authentic. Most people will tell you it probably wasn't even written by her. It wasn't inspired. It isn't, in, you know, it isn't part of the canon. It shouldn't be. It was, you know, a lot of... A lot of fraudulent Gospels were being written. There's the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas. All these sorts of Gospels were written, and most of them were not even written by the people they attributed to. It was just some guy writing down the story the way he wanted it written, and then saying, if I attribute a big person's name to it, they'll think it belonged to that person. Okay? So there was a lot of this, and that's what the early church fathers had to sort out, what was true and what wasn't. But even if you read her story and take it as true, at worst it says that he loved her more than the others, Maybe because she was, she got it and the others didn't. Maybe because Peter denied him three times. I don't know. But in the Da Vinci Code, here's the point. In the Da Vinci Code, it says, if he loved Mary Magdalene more than the others, and especially in this clause, more than Peter, you guys know the entire Catholic Church bases its view that Peter was the first head of the church. And if Jesus loved somebody more than the first head of the church, then Jesus must have wanted to give Mary Magdalene the keys to the church and not Peter. So Peter had to find a way, and he eventually did, of discrediting her, calling her a prostitute, getting rid of her, basically ditching the notion that she was the wife of Christ. And the Da Vinci Code makes it pretty clear that that was the conspiracy's beginning. That the men in the church had to run the church. They couldn't have a woman lording over them. So the first thing they did was they degraded her. They threw her out. They erased her from history. Nobody knows who she is except, of course, Leonardo da Vinci. And that was the beginning of the cover-up. 
Okay. I would say a few things to that. First of all, we know that Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church. But I don't know that he was talking to Peter. I mean, if you really think about it, Peter was not the head of the first church. Who was the head of the church in Jerusalem? Yeah, exactly. James, the brother of Jesus. Paul comes back from his, his missionary trip and actually rebukes Peter because Peter was starting to spread a little bit of some goofy doctrine about having to become a Jew before you become a Christian. And Paul says, no. So it looks like Peter, although he's an amazing disciple and he's the guy at Pentecost and he starts the movement and he eventually dies for the cause, Peter does not appear to be the head of the church, neither in Jerusalem nor in the missionary journeys. So much for that anyways. But when Jesus said, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, what he was really saying is, Peter, you just testified that I'm the Messiah, and upon that rock, I'm going to build this church, that I am the Messiah. All right. The Da Vinci Code also says that the church invented the idea that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. How many people believe that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute? Anybody in here believe that? (laughs) See, what happens in the Bible is there is a woman a sinful woman, the Bible says, who shows up on the scene, okay? It's right here. It's Simon the leper's house, and she falls at the feet of Jesus, and she washes Jesus' feet with her tears, and she does all this stuff, and she anoints Jesus, and they're like, what is she doing, you know? And then in the next verse, Mary Magdalene's on the scene doing something, and some pope in the middle of the history of the Catholic Church, which is a crazy history, confused the two of them and preached this huge sermon about how Mary Magdalene was a prostitute and she was redeemed. And from that point forward, the church for a while just confused the two and started preaching that Mary Magdalene was a reformed prostitute. Well, the Da Vinci Code picks this up and goes, you see the church was trying to discredit her and keep the truth away from us that she's really the wife of Christ and the heir apparent to the whole church. They tried to make her out into a prostitute. Well, it's just some pope who didn't read the Bible like most of them. <laughs> just got it confused. That's all it is. The Bible's pretty clear. Mary Magdalene was not a prostitute. She was one of the people that followed Jesus around in his ministry, like we said at the beginning. All right. That's what we know about Mary Magdalene. Just so that you hear it, the Da Vinci Code builds its whole theory on she was greater than the disciples. She must have been the heir apparent head of the church. He kissed her on the mouth. He loved her more than the others. This is just, you know, she was his companion, quote-unquote, in the Greek. She must have been his wife. Oh, and there's Leonardo da Vinci painting her in the Last Supper window. Okay, that'll at least give you guys some idea where it comes from, maybe how to rebut it. Let's just ask the question. Go to the next slide. Was Jesus married? Let's just ask the question. I mean, we might as well since we're here to do critical thinking. First of all, we know that there's no evidence from any source so far that he's been married. Not outside the Bible, not inside. You might have clues if he kissed her on the mouth. You might have clues if you use the word companion, but... Every scholar, if they're really put to the test and say, where does it say that he was married, would have to say, nowhere. Second of all, one of the few things that liberal and conservative scholars of any type agree on is that Jesus was single, and they don't agree on anything. But most, if not all, Christian and theological scholars outside the Christian community will agree that he's single. I did put up there, however, there's no explicit text. Let's be clear. There's nothing in the Bible that says Jesus was single. All right? But there's nothing in there that says he was married. The New Testament writers had many opportunities to disclose that Jesus was married. We're going to look at one of those examples in a second. But you guys are right who are starting to allude to. There were plenty of people following him around, plenty of commentators, plenty of times to say, be like me or do this or here's how you are when you're married. 
Okay? And finally, you guys are hitting on this one a lot. Even if Jesus had been married, would it necessarily affect his divinity? Remember, the divinity of Christ depends first and foremost on him being fully God and fully man. And of course, for him to be our salvation, he has to go through life fully human without sinning. Is marriage a sin? I think that's absolutely a good point. Who is Christ supposed to marry? The church is bride. I mean, from the, we know from the beginning of time that Christ has a wedding feast coming up, and it's not to Mary Magdalene. So maybe even more offensive than the idea that he would be married to just an ordinary person is that we already know who he's supposed to be married to. He's saving himself, and he uses that bridegroom example over and over, that whole thing, okay? So we know that he's got something very special lined up, that he has remained pure and single, not that there's like a purity in singleness only and there's no purity in marriage, but he's remained whole because he's waiting for his future bride, which is us. So there's a theological implementation, but again, the Da Vinci Code kind of has this big aha. If Jesus was married, he couldn't be divine. But again, there's no logic flow there. Let's just assume that we weren't the bride of Christ, and let's assume that Jesus, halfway down on earth, calls up to God and says, you know what, I changed my mind. I'm really digging this one woman. <laughs> and I didn't think this was going to happen, but Dad, guess what, I fell in love. He's like, I knew I shouldn't have sent you down there. <laughs> All right, maybe that's not the way the conversation went. <laughs> what would be so undivine about having a pure relationship in marriage? I mean, if Jesus can traverse all the, all the temptations without sinning, if he could walk through all of those things and traverse them easily, he probably could have had a perfect marriage. I don't know. I'm not saying that he was married. I'm just saying that the Da Vinci Code makes such a big deal out of the fact that if he was married, his divinity would explode, the church would be in shambles, and I just don't see that as a logical flow. This is a comment made by some Catholic scholars looking at the Da Vinci Code. They acknowledge that in their own history, the veneration of Mary is something that arose almost because there was Jesus as a man or God as a man, but there would needed to almost be like a female counterpart, right? So you see in Catholic theology, which I've talked about at length, there's a veneration of Mary almost to equal the feminine. And in some parts of South America and other places, Mary is even higher than Jesus, you know, by the way that the practice has been perverted over time. My question is, and the Catholic scholars who look at the Da Vinci Code say, well, if they were so desperate to make Jesus' mother divine or venerated in that way, if Mary Magdalene was anywhere near Jesus' wife, wouldn't they have just picked her instead? I mean, because there's this desperate looking for a female goddess somewhere in the Christian mythology. Why wouldn't they have picked Mary Magdalene? From the beginning, she's the natural choice. If what the Da Vinci Code and other theorists say is true... They would have just picked her. Why stretch and go to his mother? There's like the natural like, oh, prince and princess of the kingdom. You know what I mean? Instead of like the mother. It's always the mother. And I guess my point would be if Mary, from the, Mary Magdalene from the beginning was a clear choice just as the one who Jesus loved supposedly so much, I think Catholic scholars admit that she would have beat out Mary, the mother of Jesus, just because she was a natural counterpart if you're looking for a female deity. All right, so now we've debunked that idea. Let's go to the last slide and kind of wrap this up a little bit. First of all, Mary Magdalene, important point in the Bible, was never identified as having a relationship with any male figure. Let me give you an example. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, the mother of James. Everybody in the Bible who has a name is identified with a, fee, with a male relationship. 
you know, like so-and-so, the mother of the sons of Zebedee or whatever. Mary is referred to as Mary Magdalene, which is Mary of Magdala, which means the city she grew up in. She has no relationship. Just an interesting omission from the Bible. If she, if she was Mary, the wife of Christ, that probably would have made it in the book. <laughs> or if she was just Mary, the one that he loved more than everybody else, that, go, that title goes to John. So Mary seems to be unidentified with any male relationship. That's the way they referred to women in the Bible, especially the women that traveled with Jesus. Just a point. Jesus gave no specific instructions regarding Mary at the time of the crucifixion. You would think that in his dying moments, as he looks down at his mom and says, John, this is your mother, mother, take John. If he's looking at his wife and he's dying, he probably would have said, somebody get her an insurance policy or something. I'm up here. I'm withering away. Somebody else, how about any other disciple not betraying me right now? Can you get down here and take care of my wife? He doesn't make any mention of Mary at all. Peter, I know you, I know you denied me three times, but here, do me a favor. Until I come back in three days, will you hang on to my wife for a few days and make sure she's okay. No mention of Mary. She's not distinguished from any of the other women at the foot of the cross except for Mary, his mother. So, okay, here's a key text in the New Testament. This is Paul writing to the church. And this is the perfect opportunity to tell the church that Jesus was married, but he, he, he omits it. Paul is writing to the church and saying, do we not have the right to financial support? Because the church is like asking Paul, like, you know, why should we support you? Like, you know, what are you doing? I mean, whatever they're at, Paul is retorting and saying, do we not have the right to financial support us missionaries and people who serve in the ministry? And then he also says, do we not have the right to the company of a believing wife? Like the other apostles and the Lord's brothers, and Cephas, who's Peter. Do we not have that right? Now, if Paul is trying to make an argument to the church that he has the right to financial support and he has the right to be married if he wants to be, if he really wanted to make the ultimate point, he would have said, do I not have the right to be married like our Lord was married, if he really was? And he doesn't say a word. He appeals to the apostles, the Lord's brothers, and even Peter himself, but he can't say anything about the Lord. Why? Because he wasn't married. Pretty simple point. So, what does this all say to us? I think most of us already know that Jesus wasn't married. I think what's going to happen is a lot of people are going to want to poke you around if they ask you questions about this and try to point out all these other things. Here's the greatest thing you can do. Know more about it than they do and actually tell them, here's the reasons why. Here's why it doesn't make sense that he was married. Do you know the best argument that shows up in the Da Vinci Code that, well, my favorite, why Jesus was married? All this stuff aside, it said because Jesus was Jewish and a good Jewish rabbi should have been married by the time he was 30. Okay? As if, like, this guy is sitting in a Brooklyn coffee shop listening to some woman, like, gavetching about the fact that her son is, like, 30 years old and he's not married and all this stuff, and he decides to write that in the book. Now, some scholars actually write whole chapters about, and there's one in this book, I didn't even want to read, is it un-Jewish for Jesus to be a rabbi because rabbis were instructed to marry? And the whole thing, just to, just to debunk the whole thing in 10 seconds, Jesus never claimed to be a rabbi. He wasn't following the Jewish tradition. That's not what he came to earth to be. He was not a Pharisee, a Sadducee. He was an itinerant preacher who had a new mission and a new path. Jesus often bucked the tradition. You guys know that. The Jewish leaders were constantly frustrated with him. And there are plenty of examples, even in Judaism, of preachers who decide to remain celibate so they can just focus on the ministry. And Jesus is clearly one of them. 
You know, for me, learning this, maybe Mary Magdalene was a little bit more of a special person than I would have thought. Maybe she got it in a way that Jesus actually thought, wow, I really like the way she gets it. Maybe as I talked about with Vicky, maybe he was really trying to show the way a right relationship should be. The fact that he appears to Mary Magdalene is still a fact. She's one of the first people he appears to, and it's almost to say that I want it to be a woman that runs to the disciples and tells them what's going on. I want them to know that it wasn't like some guy first. It was the people coming to take care of me at the tomb. So I think Jesus throughout his ministry exhibited a very right way of looking at male and female relationships. And I think that it's not uncommon at all to see him doing something that other people would have called maybe scandalous in Jewish society just to even have a companion or someone he spoke to that was a woman, you know, and I think that shows that, you know, I may be the Lord of the universe, I may be in human form right now, but I still have a very correct view of, of relationship with women, interacting with women and showing that this is the way that their placement should be, not the way that our male institutions have been. But whatever the issue is, I'm sure that there's not any credible historical, scientific, or religious evidence that he was married to Mary Magdalene or he was married at all. And if that's the big point of the Da Vinci Code, that the big secret is that he was married, I'm not so sure that would wreck Jesus anyway. For those people who are thinking, this is it, you know, this is the conspiracy of a lifetime, I hope you guys have some evidence to counteract that. Let's pray. Lord, maybe in the silver lining of all this, there's an opportunity for people to hear about you. It's been a long time since people have even raised questions about you. So many people in our society have kind of written you off. And Lord, I know this movie could go two ways for people. Some people could find an excuse to just say, I knew it wasn't true, Lord. I knew this just was all just a bunch of baloney and I don't have to even worry about Christianity because I knew it was just a trumped up religion. Or it could cause people to ask questions. And if they do, Lord, I'm praying that we have answers. I'm praying that we're just there waiting for the opportunity. That's a heavy burden. Lord, I pray as we continue our study that your Holy Spirit be the one that's teaching and directing us. Next week we take on a really difficult topic, Lord, about understanding how these books were accepted and how they were brought into the canon. And Lord, I know that your Holy Spirit had to be the one that was directing and working on our church fathers. I have to believe that, Lord. And Lord, I pray that the same Holy Spirit would be in our midst, teaching us and showing us the same way how to understand and discern these books and how to be able to respond to those who have questions. Lord, as we always say, we're never going to win somebody over with just pure arguments. It's going to be love and our witness as character people, people who can watch us and see us from a distance and want to find what's so attractive about us. Lord, that means that your spirit has to shine through us, that your love has to be abundant in us, and that you have to teach us how to be people that other people want to interact with and learn from and engage in dialogue with. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.